Could you please open your Bible to Revelation uh, chapter 2? The title for the sermon tonight is The Church Confronted uh, and Comforted. I hope you've got an outline sheet. I think that will prove uh, to be helpful. There's a picture on there for those of you who like pictures. Um, and uh, we'll pray and uh, then we'll get into the sermon. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for this night you've given to us. Thank you that we can be gathered uh, together to sing our praises uh, unto your name. Thank you that we can pray together. And uh, Lord, I do thank you now for the privilege we have uh, to study your word. I do pray that you would uh, help me. Um, may I know uh, the feeling of the Spirit. And uh, please help us to be receptive uh, to the word you have tonight. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see if that's back. Doesn't sound like it. Okay, we'll see. Okay, if you had to conduct a health assessment uh, on our church, what would be your verdict? Okay, what, what do you think we do well and where do you think we fall short? Okay, what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? Okay, what would be the verdict of your assessment of our church? Out of 10, how would you rate it? Now, this would be an interesting exercise, and no doubt there would be mixed assessments, that there would be many different factors that influenced our current perception. But it would be impossible for us to provide an assessment that is 100% accurate because of our limitations. Okay, our personal experiences would impact our opinions. We, we all have different knowledge of what's happening or not happening. And none of us have the ability to see the inner workings of the heart. Okay, and that has a huge impact on the health of a church. So our assessments, although insightful, are somewhat limited. But there's one who could provide the perfect assessment, and that is Jesus Christ. And I wonder if Jesus was to send a letter describing our church, what would he say? What would he commend? What would he critique? Or what would be the overall tone of the letter? And no doubt we would be sitting on the edge of our seat in anticipation to hear the verdict. In the second and third chapters of Revelation, we have the assessment of seven churches. But this assessment was not conducted by the congregation, but was performed by the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, which makes them a perfect assessment and they can't be argued with. You know, often when someone says something negative about us or about our family or our church, we tend to argue the point, don't we? We get defensive and we critique the accuracy and the fairness of the assessments. But that's not possible with Jesus. Okay? His evaluation was flawless. Now, as we begin to work our way through these seven churches, there are a couple of important interpretive and structural points that we need to identify. Okay, number one, these are literal churches. Okay, these letters were written to historical churches, real congregations. They provide an assessment of what the actual church was like. So this is not merely some poetic device. This is not make-believe. This is not metaphoric. It's a real assessment of historical churches in Asia Minor in the first 
century. And you can see them on the map. Number two, these letters are applicable to all churches. Okay, although they are written to a specific local church to identify specific issues within that church, the letters apply to all churches. Okay, at the conclusion of all seven letters, we read, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Notice it's churches plural. So the content is relevant to all churches. It's universal in its diagnostic scope. So every letter is relevant to us at Condal Park. And number three, all the letters possess a distinct structure. All of these letters consist of seven parts, and there are only a couple of exceptions. Number one, we see the church identified. So each letter commences unto the angel of the church. Yeah, I believe this is speaking of the pastors of the congregations. It could also be referring to the guardian angel of the particular church. And then it identifies the particular church. So it says, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, or in Smyrna, in Pergamos. So that's how all the letters start. The second thing is Christ's character. So what follows is something about who Christ is. And what we need to understand is that this is drawn from the first chapter in Revelation. Okay, if you remember, there were two different descriptions of Christ. And it's these that are referenced. And this is meant to remind the churches of the supremacy and glory of Christ. Number three. That's the commendation of the church. Okay, in five of the churches, the Lord begins by saying something positive. Commending them for the good things. What follows is criticism of the church. So in five of the churches, their compromise, failures and sin are identified and confronted. The fifth thing is counsel and correction of the church. So the Lord then gives the church an opportunity to change, to correct their ways, or he encourages them to continue on if there is no criticism. Then as it starts to be wrapped up, there's a charge to all the churches. So each letter contains the phrase, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And as already identified, this confirms that these letters are relevant, they are applicable to all churches. And then each letter closes with a challenge and promise of reward. Okay, each letter finishes with a call to be committed. And then there's a promise of reward. And these rewards, for the most part, are spoken about later on in the book. Okay, from Revelation 19 through to 22. Okay, you, you will see in with Ephesus, as the example in verse 7, it mentions the tree of life. Okay, which is mentioned at the back the book. So that's the basic structure of these letters. And with those interpretive and structural points identified and clarified, we can begin to consider these letters. 
Now, the outline that we're following through the book of Revelation, Pastor and I have an outline we're working through. Uh, this outline puts churches together in one sermon. And the churches for tonight are Ephesus and Smyrna. One is a letter of confrontation. The other is a letter of comfort. So quite different messages. And yet both are relevant. Both are applicable to the different situations that we find ourselves in as a church corporately and also as individuals. So let's consider these two letters. Okay, the first letter, the letter to the church at Ephesus, the letter of confrontation. You know, I wonder what the people were expecting as they gathered around for the public reading of Jesus' assessment of their church. No doubt there was much nervous expectation. Okay, what would Jesus say about our church? Now, this church at Ephesus was important and influential. It was like the mother church of the Asia Minor region. Scholars believe that the other six churches mentioned in Revelation were likely planted by the church at Ephesus. Okay, the city of Ephesus was large and influential. It was significant politically, commercially, and religiously. It was most famous for the temple of Artemis or Diana. Okay, that's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And due to this temple, Diana worship, which was unspeakably immoral and perverted, that was the primary religion. Okay, and understand, to go against that was to bring a smorgasbord of difficulties into your life. Okay, that's what the Christians were faced with. But this was a very strategic and significant location for a church. And here's the thing about this particular church. It possessed a spiritual pedigree that's rivaled by very few churches, if any, throughout history. This is what I mean by that. The Apostle Paul ministered in this church for a period of two to three years. Okay, so he invested in this congregation. Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos played a vital role in laying the foundations of this church Timothy pastored at Ephesus, and church history tells us that the Apostle John also filled the pastorate. Okay, so talk about the dream team. Okay, if you like basketball, this is like Jordan, LeBron, and Kobe in the one team. Okay, so this church had received top shelf preaching and teaching. It was certainly a privileged congregation. They possessed a rich heritage. But what would the Lord say about it? Well, in verse 1, as the letter commences, we see the authority of Christ over the church. It says, he holdeth. So he has a tight grip on the leaders of the church and the church itself. Okay, so this shows us that the church and the leaders are Christ. They're under his control. But we also see that Jesus is walking amongst the church. So this tells us that Jesus is present. Jesus cares. Jesus is concerned about the church. He's not some absent boss. He's not some disinterested deity. But he's there. Personally and intimately present. And this is still true of Jesus. Okay, he's the authoritative one. It is his church. But he's present. He cares. He's concerned about 
the church. And since he's present, he's able to make an assessment. And this is very clear in verse 2. It says, I know thy works. That phrase is repeated in all seven letters. Now, there are two different Greek words translated know. Okay, one of the terms refers to a progressive gaining of knowledge. So that's like you enroll to a course and you gradually learn more and more and more. Whereas the term used here speaks of complete and full knowledge. So Jesus knows everything there's to know about this church and every church. He knows the good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly. And this qualifies him to make the perfect assessments. But what would he say? Okay, what would he say about the church at Ephesus? Well, it starts very positively. And I picture like a collective sigh of relief. It's like, oh, phew, Jesus has some good things to say about us. In fact, he identifies three praiseworthy qualities of this church. We see they were a serving church. Verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor. And this phrase is also picked up in verse 3. Okay, for my name's sake, hast labored. So they were a church who were doing much for the Lord. Now we would say today they have a packed ministry program. They were busy serving. The word labor means to toil. It's strenuous work to the point of exhaustion. It speaks of giving your all physically, mentally, and emotionally. To put it negatively, they were not lazy. They were not pew warmers. They didn't treat church as a spectator sport. Okay, they weren't sitting in the grandstand criticizing the players, but they were in the game. They were serving the Lord diligently. And this is admirable. This pleases Jesus. Jesus wants his church to be active and engaged in his work. Okay, this is why he's given us spiritual gifts. Jesus doesn't intend us to be the armchair critic. You know, the one who sits in the lounge watching the sport. He's never played the sport and yet is incre incredibly opinionated about that sport and criticizes the players as useless despite never playing the sport. Okay, we're not to be like that. Okay, that's not meant to characterize the church. We're called to be in the game. Okay, we're called to be serving Jesus. That's his expectation. So they were a serving church. They're also a persevering church. Verse 2 says, And thy patience. Verse 3, And hast borne and hast patience. And for my name's sake, hast labored and hast not fainted. But the term patience in both verses 2 and 3 speaks of endurance in the face of difficulty. Okay? Endurance in the face of challenging circumstances. So the Greek word denotes a courageous acceptance of hardship, difficulty, and loss. So it's obvious that things were not easy for this church. Trials and tribulations abounded. Persecution was present. One writer gave this insight, I believe it's helpful, he says that the Ephesian Christians faced special challenges because they refused to bow the knee to the goddess Diana. They found themselves maligned, slandered, boycotted and abused, not unlike Jewish merchants in Berlin in the 1930s. 
Christians in Ephesus would have been the objects of physical violence, social ostracism and economic repression. Yet they endured. Okay, so this is an admirable quality. This is one that pleased the Lord. They continued on. Okay, even when it would have been very easy to quit. Okay, if they throw in the towel that the persecution, the ostracism, it would disappear almost instantly. And yet they never took the easy way out. They persevered. And again, that's very admirable. That's something that by God's grace is worth emulating. Continue to serve the Lord. Continue to live for Him even when times are tough. Even when things aren't working out. Okay, that's a quality of true saving faith. And the motivation is to remember that Jesus never quit on us when things got hard for Him. Jesus didn't give up on the cross. Okay, he finished the work, he cried out, it is finished. Salvation is now possible. And my friend, I trust you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So that's the second thing that they were praised for. The third, they were concerned about doctrinal purity. Verse 2, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil... And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Verse 6. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So this church was concerned about moral purity and doctrinal purity. In this case, they seem to be linked, but the emphasis is on doctrinal purity. Okay, this was something they valued, that they relentlessly defended the truth, okay, that they confronted those who claimed to be apostles but were not. You know, what's interesting is that when Paul left Ephesus, this is recorded in Acts chapter 20. Do you remember what he warned the elders about? Okay, he warned them particularly about the danger of false teachers. He warned them about men who would speak perverse things with the intention of drawing disciples away. He describes them as wolves. And we know what wolves do to sheep. That's the imagery. And hence this church has taken heed to these warnings. That they have strived for gospel purity. They have defended the truth. It seems that the Nicolaitans were the chief adversary. Okay, that they were propagating falsehood. We can't be certain of the exact nature of their teaching. But it's commendable that they rejected it. That they desired doctrinal faithfulness. That they wanted to stick to sound doctrine. And that is an admirable quality in any church. So we see that this church at Ephesus seemed to have much going for it. If you and I were looking for a church, it ticked a lot of boxes. On the surface, things looked good. They were serving they were persevering. They valued sound doctrine. Okay, they, these are all wonderful qualities. So far, so good. Maybe they were patting themselves on the back as I heard this read out. But then uh, verse 4 comes. And it commences, nevertheless. In the Greek, it's the word Allah. Strong contrast. And it's like, oh no. You can almost hear that the grasp of disappointment from the congregation 
because they knew the critique from Jesus was coming. So that they were doing all of these great things, but Jesus could see past the external. He could see past the facade and there was a glaring flaw, one that didn't please Jesus. He says in verse 4, thou hast left thy first love. Whoa, that's a piercing statement. Thou hast left thy first love. That's quite a picturesque image. Okay, you know, the image I have in my mind is that of a married couple. And one says, I just don't love you anymore. I don't want to be with you anymore. That would have to be one of the most devastating things to hear. And this is what the church had done. That they had departed their first love. And I want you to notice okay, that... They didn't lose their first love. Okay? It doesn't say they lost it. That would convey an accident. I lost my keys. I don't do that on purpose. But rather they had left. That's a definite and sad departure. Okay? The, the church had walked away from their first love. Sure, it, it would have been gradual. But they had departed. Now, there's some debate about the object of love. Okay, what was this love talking about? It could be love for each other. It could be a love for the unsaved community. Or it could be love for Christ. I think all three are related. But the primary idea is that their love for Jesus had waned. Okay, and if your love for Jesus wanes, your love for one another will wane, as will your love for the lost. Okay, but I believe it's primarily talking about love for Jesus because this makes more sense with the proposed remedy in verse 5, which will come to shortly. But think about it. How devastating that this church, on the surface, that they looked so impressive, that they had so much going for it, and yet, truth be told, that they were just going through the motions. That their Christianity had degenerated into mechanical orthodoxy. There was little love for Christ. And that the fire that once burnt brightly was now but a smolder. That they were no longer smitten by Christ. They had become just like the people in the time of Isaiah. The prophet wrote, you know, This people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me. But have removed their heart far from me and what a sad situation that this church found themselves in but my friend please understand that we too are susceptible you and I we we can just go through the motions we, we can serve we, we can be involved in lots of ministries we, we can listen to the sermons or we can be here all three services we, we can even defend the truth. We can even enjoy theology. And yet our hearts can be cold and empty. We will look fine on the outside, but inside there's, there's little life. There's little love for Christ. We're not motivated by love for Him anymore. You know, we're motivated by something else. We're no longer enthralled by Christ like we once were. A church and the Christian life, it's, it can just become dead. Our love for Christ 
has evaporated. Perhaps you can relate to that. And my friend, understand this is, this is serious. Because Jesus threatens to remove the candlestick, verse 5. Which here means that the church will cease to exist. It's not talking about loss of salvation, it's talking about the church. It would cease to exist. Okay, a church isn't a true church without love for Christ. And seeing the seriousness of this, it raises a question. How can we return to our first love? Okay, if this describes us like it describes this church, how can we return? Okay, well, three R's. I get them from verse 5. Remember, repent, return. Remember. Okay, recall happier times. Re recall those times when love for Christ was very evident. Re remember all that Christ has done for you. My friend, he died for your sin. He's your creator. He's your redeemer. Remember who he is. There is nobody like Jesus. And this remembrance, this produces gratitude, which produces love. So we need to purposefully recall and remember. We also need to repent. Okay, repent. Acknowledge that there's a problem. If you never acknowledge there's a problem, you're not going to change. Acknowledge there's a problem. Turn from it. Confess the coldness and distance. Lord, I'm sorry. I have grown cold in my love for you. Please forgive me. And if you seek his forgiveness... He'll extend it to you. Turn from that lovelessness. And then we're told to return. Come back to the first works. Well, what are the first works? Well, they're the basic things. Pray. Spend time in the word. Worship biblically. Tell others about Christ. Fellowship with the saints. Sing hymns. Meditate on scripture. It's doing these simple things. Partaking of what we call the common means of grace that will rekindle and grow your love for Christ. That's the remedy. Remember, repent, return. So my friend, does this describe you? Is your love for Christ not what it once was? Has church just become dead orthodoxy to you? Sure, you attend. You know you need to be at church. You, you even serve. But truth be told, your heart is far from Jesus. Could, could this letter be addressed to you? you know, could it say, you know, dear Brandon, you have left your first love? You know, if that's you, why not come back to Christ? Don't you miss him? Don't you yearn for that closeness and intimacy that you once enjoyed? Don't you crave that joy of the Lord's? And then think about it from the other perspective. How can you not love him? How can we not love Jesus? Man, he's perfect. And he loves you. He loves you so much that he died for you. Man, it makes no sense we leave our love for Christ it's a very clear indicator of our brokenness and desperate need of grace my friend why not return to Christ stop robbing yourself of an intimate relationship with Jesus
Stop wandering away from him, but return to your first love. And I wonder what a difference it would make in our church if all of us returned to our first love. If every single one of us loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our minds. How would that change our impact as a church? I think it would be revolutionary. We have ears. We need to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. My friend, Jesus doesn't just want your service. He doesn't just want your hands. Jesus wants your heart. That's the first letter. A letter of confrontation. Secondly, the letter to the church at Smyrna. This is a letter of comfort. And from its beginning up until this very moment, the church has faced persecution. And this ought not to surprise us. Okay? Jesus warns the church that this would be the result of following him. And this letter to the church at Smyrna has much to say to the suffering and persecuted Christian. Now, as we begin to think about persecution, okay, I want to say this up front. It's important for us to understand in Australia... You and I, we face what we could call opposition. People are cruel, people are callous. But we haven't and we aren't experiencing persecution like this church in Smyrna and like many others throughout the world today. There seems to be a popular trend within our churches to overstate what we're experiencing in Australia. Okay, there aren't too many cases in our country where Christians are persecuted intensely and immensely like is spoken of in the Bible. I think we're on that path, but we're not yet there. So we need to be careful that we don't overstate what the church experiences in our country. Okay, we aren't facing death threats for being a Christian in Australia at this point. And yet, there's much for us to learn from this persecuted church. It can help you and I in the smaller issues that we face. It prepares us for persecution, which is probably coming. And that also helps us to understand and pray for those who are facing intense persecution throughout this world. Okay, even though we aren't experiencing this in Australia, understand it's happening in a lot of the world. In fact, scholars estimate that more Christians have been killed in the 20th century than the rest of history. Okay, so this is very, a very relevant word for the church in 2023. So let's consider this church. We don't know a great deal about the church at Smyrna. We don't know when it was planted. It seems likely Ephesus was the planting church. It was located about 50 kilometers from Ephesus. Apparently there was a bit of rivalry between Smyrna and Ephesus. They used to debate as to who was the most important and beautiful city. Historians say that Smyrna was famous for its natural beauty, along with its academic prowess. It possessed a superb school of medicine. If you wanted to study medicine, you wanted to go to Smyrna. It was a very wealthy and affluent city. But it was riddled with all kinds of idolatry. It's nearly like if you can think of a god, it's probably worshipped at Smyrna. 
But the most important thing to know about this city is that in AD 23, Smyrna won the privilege, I'll say privilege, over 11 other cities to build the first temple to worship the emperor. So Smyrna was a leading city in the Roman cult of emperor worship. And at the time that this letter was written, emperor worship was now compulsory in the empire. Okay, what did that entail? Well, every year one was required to burn a pinch of incense and say Caesar is Lord and you'd receive the certificate of acknowledgement and you could go your way. But this was an issue for Christians. Okay, that they wouldn't and they couldn't do this. And this was one of the primary reasons why the church at Smyrna was persecuted so ruthlessly. Because they refused to be involved in emperor worship. Okay, in the practice that this city prided themselves on. Okay, so, so that's, the, that's the reason behind the persecution. And Jesus had a message for the suffering saints in Smyrna. It's this that we have recorded. Now, and one writer tried to, to set the scene. Okay, and I want you to try and engage your imagination. Okay? I, I found this helpful. Okay, he said this. Imagine yourself sitting among the gathering of God's people in Smyrna on a cold morning before sunrise. A small lamp lit room houses the remnant of beaten and besieged church members. The once lively crowd of Christians now displays obvious gaps where men and women once sat. Some have fallen away under the persecution. Others are simply gone, arrested, exiled, or executed. Now, some of you risked your lives just to meet this morning, to pray, to sing hymns to God, and to read from Holy Scripture. All of you are outcasts, desperate for a word of encouragement from the messenger sitting in your midst. In the dim light, the pastor unrolls the scroll and begins to read with a calm, quiet confidence. All the whispering in the room ceases when they hear from whom the message comes, the Lord Jesus himself. And this entire group holds its breath when Christ begins his commendation of this church. Can, can you picture it? Can you picture the scene? Imagine hearing this for the first time. Remembering this is written to real people in a real church, in a real situation. What did Jesus have to say? Well, in verse 8, he begins by introducing himself as the first and last, which was dead and is alive. Now, again, this comes from the previous chapter, it comes from verses 17 and 18. And this is encouraging this church to remember the exalted Christ. Yes, life is hard. Yes, they are beaten and bruised. Things don't look good. You're small. You're insignificant. But you serve an eternal God. You know, the one who died but is alive again. I, th I think there's a deliberate connection here to those who were persecuted. Many had already, no doubt, been killed. We know that many were facing death. Verse 10 makes that clear. But at the beginning, they're to turn their eyes to Jesus, to the one who defeated death. And even if these saints were martyred, they would live just like their Lord. So the revelation of this particular aspect of Christ's character is highly significant for this church. 
We then learn some details about their persecution. We learn in verse 9 they were in poverty. The Greek word means absolute destitution. They had to beg. So they were living in a wealthy city, and yet because of their Christianity, they were in poverty. This likely means they faced loss of employment, perhaps fines. Maybe they were even targeted by robbers because of their faith. Okay, so that's one aspect. They're in poverty. We also learn of some troublesome Jews. In verse 9, they're identified as them which say they are Jews and are not. What does that mean? Well, they were physically Jewish, but they were not Jewish spiritually. It's like that terminology that Paul uses in Romans. And it was this group. They were responsible for varying blasphemies. Okay, they were spreading slanderous lies designed to inflame and increase hatred toward the church. Now, what kind of lies were being spread about Christians? Well, Christians were accused of cannibalism based on a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. Immorality based on the perversion of the Holy Kiss, which was a common greeting amongst believers. Breaking up homes when one spouse become a Christian and the other didn't, it caused conflict. Atheism, ironically, because Christians rejected the pagan pantheon of gods. Political disloyalty and rebellion because Christians refused to offer sacrifices to the emperor. So that's quite intense. That has quite the ramifications. And it proved to be effective. Because verse 10 reveals that they had been and would continue to be cast into prison and many would face death. So this church at Smyrna were enduring economic, physical, religious and social opposition and oppression. They were marked out and ostracized. They were misrepresented. And they paid the price. It cost them immensely to take a stand for Jesus. That there was a real sacrifice in remaining faithful. And it's very significant that unlike those at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, they didn't leave their first love. Despite what following Christ was costing them. But this word to Smyrna, it's, it's not merely rehashing what they had endured. They were very aware of the reality of persecution. But this letter contains four comforts for the Christian when they endure persecution, whether great or small. The first comfort is that Jesus knows. Okay, Jesus knew all about their troubles. He was not ignorant of their plights, nor was he unmoved. How do we know that? Well, he wrote them a letter. Okay, and here's the thing with Jesus. Jesus understands what it's like to be persecuted. Jesus is not some God who has never experienced it. But rather he experienced the ultimate unjust persecution, that being the cross. Okay, he died the death of a criminal despite being innocent. He knew no sin. So my friend, Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. And Jesus actually suffers with us. He's not unmoved. He's not distant. Do you remember the story in the book of Daniel when they were cast into the fire? Who was with them? I believe it was a pre-incarnate Christ. Jesus is with them. And Jesus is with his church. This is the first comfort 
for the persecuted. The second comfort, it's not purposeless. You know, what's the point and purpose of suffering? Have you ever asked that question? That's a question that's often wrestled with. And it's often an accusation fired at God. But notice in verse 10. This persecution was going to be used to try them. Okay, this speaks of purification. So this was going to be used by the Lord. This intense persecution was not pointless. The Lord had something that he's seeking to bring about through it. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about why Christians suffer. It could be disciplinary. Hebrews 12, 3 to 13. It could be preventative. Okay, think of Paul and his thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. It could be to equip us to help others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. It could be to produce character and spiritual growth that we wouldn't learn any other way. James 1, 2 and 3. It can be to educate us about something we wouldn't learn any other way. Hebrews 5, 8 talks about that, speaking of Christ. Or it could be an instrument which enables us to be a powerful witness for Christ that we wouldn't be without the suffering. Think of Paul, Acts 9, 16. And although this doesn't make suffering easy, it's like, well, thanks for that, suffering's easy now. Well, not, not at all. But it's true that even in intense persecution like experienced at Smyrna, God has something that he's seeking to achieve through it. Okay? It's never pointless. Okay? And this is a comfort. Nothing is purposeless with God. And if you know church history, you will know that persecution has been used to grow and strengthen the church. If you persecute the church, the church will thrive. We've seen that repeated over and over again. The third comfort is that God controls it. Notice in verse 10 it mentions Satan. So we need to remember that he's real and active and he can be behind persecution. But understand Satan can do nothing unless God permits it. Because in verse 10 it says that it will last for 10 days. And there are varying interpretations of this phrase. Some make a little bit of sense. Some make no sense. Uh, I interpret it to be speaking of ten literal days. Okay, so the Lord restricts how long this particular burst of persecution would last. Okay? Okay, can you see that? Satan could only persecute them for ten days. Not eleven. Not twelve. God is in control of it. And that is a comfort. And number four, okay, the fourth comfort. Persecution can't take away what's in store for us. Okay, no matter what this world may do to Christians, no matter how intense the persecution, even if they take our life, they can't take away the glorious things that we have in store for us in Christ. Verse 10, they can't take the crown of life. Verse 11, they can't hurt us in the second death. Yes, they can hurt and kill us now. But they can't do anything that affects what happens after death. And we as Christians have so many wonderful and glorious things in store for us. And the world can do their absolute worst. And they are 
But this doesn't impact what Christ will do for us. And hence, we can be like Paul who says to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Okay, the worst persecution imaginable has no impact on what awaits us in Christ. So Shmyrna. Shmyrna is the persecuted church. And I want to leave you with, with two thoughts to ponder in regards to this letter to Shmyrna. Okay, number one, don't be surprised by persecution. It's a part of following Christ. It doesn't mean you are a failure. As Christians, we should expect to be persecuted. Number two, and this is very practical, we need to be praying for those who are intensely persecuted. Because this is happening in our world right now. Estimates say that 65% of martyrs have been in the 20th century. So don't forget to pray for our brothers and sisters throughout this world who have been persecuted. Okay, There are some organizations who have regular updates that will help you to pray very particularly. And surely this is the least we can do for them. Remember, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to spend all eternity together. You know, Surely we can be praying for them. So here are two churches. One remains steadfast in their love for Christ, even in the face of intense persecution. The love for Christ of the other church diminished. And the question I have for you and for me is this. Okay, where, where are you at? Do you love Jesus? Are you growing in your love for him? Do you love him more than anything else? Or has that love diminished? Is, is it not what it once was. Maybe it was even suffering that has brought this on. Perhaps tonight it's time to recommit to Jesus. You know that your love for him is not what it once was. If that's you, return to him. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He's waiting. He's waiting. He'll forgive you. He'll be thrilled. That you're back. And it's worth it. Because there's nobody as lovely as Jesus. There's nobody as lovable as him. No one has done for us what Jesus has done for us. And may God help us to be growing in our love for our Lord. Amen. Father, I do thank you for your word from these first two churches, very different messages. You know the needs of our heart. The Lord, even now, I pray the Holy Spirit would be convicting us, challenging us, encouraging us. Father, please grant to us the grace that we so desperately need to respond positively to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.